Hi, I'm Lawrence Diamond. And I'm Bob Matthews. And this is The Process of Production. Mate, how's your week been? Great, thank you. Yeah, we got a lot of lot of good reactions to our Black Friday episode. Yeah, some really nice um, feedback on the Instagram and uh, messages from you guys. So thank you for that. There's a lot of pop for Oxford Inflator. Yes, um, a lot of pop for that. I made I made a cheeky little purchase of that today. Ah, oh, nice. You do. You went for it in the end. I yeah. did. I did. I did. It's an absolute no brainer. And I also got my Spitfire Audio BBC Orchestra download link the day before so i'm i'm balling i'm balling out this black friday sweet say. nice one yeah i uh I, I ended up treating myself to a couple of things i got this soft tube spring reverb oh tasty yeah it's a really nice really nice spring reverb uh, emulation we're taping this on black friday and uh waves have just released their free plugin of the day which is like a, a spring reverb uh vintage delay thing and and it's just crashed it's crashed the website so um maybe we'll try and get that in our uh in our toolkit before the end of the day, but we, we may be f- uh, foiled by the uh, vagarities of the uh, yeah, of the internet. I've, I nearly got there a couple of times. It's called Lo-Fi Space. I got to the point where you put in your email and then it's just crashed again. So uh, no dice. Um, shout out as well to Jamie Amos, who gave us some great feedback on uh, what he was looking for in his, uh, his Black Friday purchases. Big shout out to Adam at Bamboo Box Studios, who sent us some lovely comments about the podcast. We really appreciate um you guys reaching out to us and, and we had a few other messages on the Instagram. Yeah. So much, much appreciated. You got your new Mac. I did. Yeah. Well, it, it was actually quite good timing because, you know, when, when you get the new laptop, there's a, so much kind of software that needs reinstalling. Sure. And, you know, I spent like a day doing that and it turned out I had to buy a bunch of stuff again. And we mentioned the Waves update plan in our Black Friday episode. Yes. All my Wave stuff was not compatible with the new OS. Oh, so, no. uh, yeah, but luckily they that that was kind of on sale as well as all the plugins. So nice. I, I, I still had to spend 135 quid for plugins that I already own, which felt a bit galling. But um, it was cheaper than it otherwise would have been. And I, yeah, I said I said last week that uh, it's sometimes cheaper to just buy the plugins again. I, having looked into it, that's not true. Um, sure. But it, well, and I was sort of thinking about what you'd said, and yeah. it was like there's such good value. Mm, yeah. That actually, if you sort of think that that update cost is sort of part of it then yeah. it, then it feels less painful when you're like gosh i got a hell of a lot of these plugins yeah but um they're such great plugins so yeah i sort of framed it like that in my head and it felt a lot less painful um i guess this week has also got a new mac which yes. we sort of talk a little bit about in the episode but it's a gentleman called paul wally um who i did a songwriting session with last year and it just really enjoyed it and have sort of watched, well, watched his career grow before that. And it's been growing since then. Um, he's a lovely guy. He was a lovely person to be in a session with. Mm. Um, and he's also, he's based up at Tile Yard, which is a place that kind of is a big hub for a lot of music producers and writers. And we really wanted to do an episode where we got an insight on that. Um, yeah, it's and, been it's it's been a kind of institution for, for a few years now. Um, you know, with some of the, some of the most interesting producers in London are all working out of there, and it's kind of one of the few places in the city you can go and feel like it's a real, you know, centre for music. Mm, um, there isn't definitely. really anything else like it anymore. I've spent a bit of time. I, I actually did the session with Paul on Zoom, but I have spent some time up there for for other yeah. things. Um, it's a fascinating space. I'm I'm simultaneously uh, in love with it and terrified of it because yeah. it is like a very kind of, you know, work is being... It, it's not like a whole load of people sitting around just like jamming and making the tunes for their soul. Yeah. It's, it, it, it can feel quite kind of... I want to say like focused. Yeah. Like laser focused. It, it's quite intimidating. I've been there for <laughs> a couple of sessions and just this big building and it's kind of, you know, it's all full of studios and it's a bit like, God, what's going on in there? Like there's, you know, there must be so many like people beavering away at songs right now. It kind of feels like a hit factory. Yeah. And I I, I find that quite appealing. Yeah. And, and it also, as I said, quite scary because it's almost like going for a trial at Man United yeah. as opposed to like having a kickabout with your mates in the park, mm. just being around music. It's, it is inspiring. And I think for someone who's working at the level Paul's working about, he talks about that inspiration of seeing these people reaching and working for, for something. And it's a different, it's just a different way of making records. And we, we do talk about that a lot in the interview. Yeah. And, and um, I think this episode's a good insight into kind of that pop production line. The other thing to say is that um, we were due to interview Paul a few weeks ago and he 
felt unwell and and had to spend a, a period of time in in hospital so um he sort of alludes to that at the beginning of the interview so just just as a bit of a heads up this was sort of his first week back in his studio yep. space so we're um we're really grateful for paul for doing the interview we're really grateful that he fitted us in after everything he's been yeah. through and um yeah i think uh, paul paul is definitely one to watch i feel like in the next year or two you, we might look back on this interview and be like oh we caught him just before um we would have had to have battered down the door at Air Studios to get ten minutes of his time. Yeah, because he's he's working so hard and he's already had you know some some really really good cuts and he's just gonna get more and more. You know, you can tell with his work ethic. So um, yeah, big thank you to Paul. Big thanks to all of you for your feedback on our Black Friday episode. Yep. And uh, great, should we get to the interview? Let's do it. Working from his studio space in Tile Yard, the North London studio hub that's been home to the likes of Mark Ronson. Noel Gallagher and M&EK, Paul Wally is one of the most prolific and exciting producers working in the industry today. Despite a master's from Guildhall School of Music and Classical Composition, it's in the more modern pop, dance and rock worlds that he's been making a name for himself since moving to the North London Complex in 2015. The last few months alone have seen releases from boy band legends The Wanted, alt-pop queen Amber Van Day, Reading Main stage upstarts The Harrow, and alt-folk singer-songwriter Josie Proto. It's also seen him be rushed to hospital after a health scare that took him out of the studio for three weeks. The first proper holiday, if you can call it that, that he'd had since moving to Yard. We start by asking how that work ethic came about, how the experience of the last few weeks is impacting his approach to production, and how, at the end of the day, he's still happiest with a guitar in his hand. You're kind of one of the most prolific producers and writers we've interviewed, and you've sort of just oh, alluded to it there, like seven years without really any time off except Christmas before what sort of happened in the last few few weeks. And not whether that's a conscious thing or not, or is it just a thing of like, wow, this is great work that's coming in, and you you sort of don't say no because you know it's it's great to be coming in. Or what's kind of your thought process behind that? And then maybe the thought process behind where do I draw a line and start to maybe get a bit more balance in my life seven years yeah. in as it were i mean one i'm a workaholic cool. um came from a classical background where like you know it is practice 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 mm -hmm. going through like because i was at Guildhall school of music like classical conservatoire where you're around these violinists and piano players that are practicing 10 hours a day yeah. plus yeah that gets sort of imbued into you the other side yeah it's exactly what you were saying like there's good stuff coming in and i try and look at any session I'm doing, if it's a writing session with anyone or just paid production work mm -hmm. or a vocal engineering session, you know, regardless of who it's for, if it's good or bad or like just, you know, whatever, I try and look at it as something to like gain from yeah, and be like, there's always something to learn and, you know, oh, cool, I'm going to try this different vocal chain today. Okay, I'm doing this production work for this young like artist from Manchester or whatever, which I've been doing one recently. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, this is not my song. He's written it all and the song stays. So I'm like, cool, I'm going to get away from using all my presets. I'm going to use something different. So I'm always nice. trying to gain from stuff and then take that into other sessions. Like, I mean, I've got, this is actually one of the weird things that I'm trying to sort out because I'm on my new M1 machine is like, I have a huge library of like sounds that I always just save from sessions. Sure. I'm trying to figure out how to get that all across mm. in a minute. Was there a little bit of you like, do I try and use this as a place to start again? Or is it just like, no, there's... Oh, massively, yeah. Very deliberately have set this up as like complete clean slate. Mm -hmm. I've even gotten rid of the last couple of cracks that I had. I haven't installed, I haven't taken anything across. I've just been sat at home installing, buying all the last bits that I need, trying to open old sessions to be like, okay, I'm missing this, missing this. Do right, I actually yeah, yeah, this? yeah, yeah. And yeah, use it as a like set from scratch, break some of the habits. Um, for years, I've had a like evolving template in pro tools mm -hmm. that it's kind of like i had i actually had to go back to an old song today from four years ago and sort of saw my old template and was like oh wow and now i've actually made the very conscious move to not have a template at all ah cool right I have all That's the like yeah you know, i've got all this I mean, you can't quite see it here but i've got all this fancy gear i've got a moog i've got a mellotron i've got a rack of outboard i've got a tape echo like you know the guitars all over the place yeah but I've got the back end of that now so set up that I can just build a session however I want to build it. Mm, lovely. So trying to like not just look at the same thing visually, mm. I'm just going to try that for a bit and see if it re-inspires me. Mm. That might encourage you to use use the more of that physical stuff that you've got in your room as well. I yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I think I think just day after day as well because I was looking at the same like visual 
layout yeah. as well. And I think there's a time, isn't it? I mean, I've never worked kind of at the level you're working at where it's so constant, but occasionally you are just like, I need to do this in a short period of time. Yeah. And I'm like vo- chasing my tail to an extent and it's just yeah. easy to have these things, but that can eventually get not as creative and not as enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, like, vocal chains and vocal template, great. And, you know, the yep. new Pro Tools has a thing where you can just hit a few keys and it loads up, you know, 25 channels for you, right. which is great. Like, that kind of part of it to keep things flowing, you know, if someone's suddenly in a session, like, oh, can you hand me that mic, kind of jump in the booth, you've got to be able to do that. Yeah, on the yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, otherwise it just, I think you could just see yourself going to the same, I could, or at least I could, mm. particularly after I'd done the Wanted record. That was like a weird turning point for me where I did that and I was so happy with it and so sort of proud of it Yeah, that I was clocking myself. And I think because I was going through that and doing this album for this German artist, uh, Patricia Kelly, where I did like 12 tracks. Wow. And because I was looking at those same sessions so much, then when I did do writing sessions, I was finding myself sort of going to the same stuff, the same chains, the same, you know, like even just the colors of things were just becoming like a bit of a like, Okay, I'm I'm just seeing this too too much. Right. And also, you came from a classical background, where we've talked about this with a lot of producers, maybe not as classically trained as you, but certainly very competent musicians. And you go, when was the last ten years? Ten years ago, I never looked at a laptop screen. I looked at sheet music, yeah. or I practiced. Did you find yourself yeah. getting too drawn into that visual of creation and and need to kind of yeah. pull away from that a little? Well, bit? that that's been the main sort of driver behind getting half this gear. Just to be more tactile and more creative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just to have that and just get away from some of that. At this point in the interview, Paul's beautiful dog Jack came over for a pet and sort of interrupted our flow. But uh, it then sort of segued off into a lovely chat about the wonderfulness that an animal in the studio can bring. Like, I've always wanted a dog. But my God, with some artists who are like quite shy. Yeah. And particularly if they're into dogs, he is like a therapist for them. Um, yeah, and some of those artists that I've wrote with before I got him and then once I've had him obviously he's a bit older so he's trained now the writing that comes out of them is so much better because they're just like they've got this therapy thing it's almost like having a teddy bear to cuddle <laughs> that's in- interesting you mentioned kind of the therapy side of sessions because th- there's a huge aspect to what we do as producers to like t- talking artists through what they're going through oh yeah I'd be interested in your perspective on that you given you know you're working to a lot of deadlines given how prolific you are like how do you work that side of things into you know the more practical side of like we got to get this project finished it's to me it's like one of the absolute priorities you know particularly being here at Italiard like the cafe was such a stalwart of things yeah and it's kind of got a different flow now but actually I quite like it and it's one of the things that I found over zoom sessions as well was zoom sessions became so efficient <laughs> that like you were just jumping in and three hours you were done I you know I had a cut recently that came out with the DJ in Nash like a was he from? I don't even, can't remember. <laughs> don't even from, know. Where I wrote it with two guys from Nashville in 45 minutes. Wow. I never even heard the vocal. Like, that's how quick these sessions were. Yeah. And that was just not being conducive to anything kind of but dance music. Right. Yeah. So I tried to pull that. I sort of thought about this therapy thing and pulled it back in and be like, no, we need to sit and have the coffee for half an hour yeah. to an hour. And like every single session I'm doing at the minute, I'm sat outside the cafe meeting there, buying them a coffee, and mm. we're talking. Before you even and, get in the space and just yeah. developing that, yeah. Yeah, and it's usually, you know, 45 minutes to an hour before we've even listened to music. And those mm. sessions just flow so much better because I find it lets people just sit and relax and breathe for a minute. And there's always a sense of nervousness. I've, you know, I've done sessions where you are going somewhere and you're like, what's this going to be like? What are they going to be like? And and the studio is a room that feels like, well, you better be ready to create something. Yeah, and again, going back to this like therapy thing you mentioned, like mm. if you want people to really pull their heart out to be able to explore things and the studio has to be a safe space. Yeah. People, now I read a great quote by Paul Epworth that was kind of like saying people are so afraid of studios nowadays because of this like done in a day mentality. Mm, mm. And you know, quite often yeah. you are doing, yeah. you know, doing one session on things. Yeah. But for me, I always just say to people like, look, if we just get the best chorus, if we get the whole record, I don't really mind. Like, Yeah. Yeah, because you live a lot in that world, Paul, maybe more than any other producer that we've interviewed till now. You know, some people we interview there may be doing three albums yeah. a year, four months on each album. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you're coming from that world where there might be an, an hour with a DJ in Tennessee on Zoom and at the end of it, there's a cut. But you also do have 
these relationships that you're building with people like the Hara or Josie Proto, where it is a much more organic thing. And yeah. and how do you bring that organic feeling, that relationship thing into a world where maybe you do just have a day with someone? And and moving on from that, how, when you're saying like, oh, it doesn't matter, let's just get the chorus today. How do you then yeah. work yeah. work back around to ensure that like you get a song or you get a a record at the end of the day? To me, it's, it's finding that like you know a lot with that like first hour having coffee that personable relationship mm. it's like with Josie she was so much fun to me because you know she come from being a busker and a pub singer and I've met her through a sort of connection at Universal who was interested and she's since got on to sign there to Ireland but you know she had no idea about production she had no idea how she wanted these things to sound she'd experimented with some of that and I think we did I remember my management actually getting pissed off about this. We did four days. <clears throat> Originally, we didn't record anything. Amazing. Wow, amazing. And I just said to her, I was like, cool, let's just play me these songs. Like, sit on a guitar and play them to me like you would in the pub. Because she was playing me these other demos and she was like, I don't like this, I don't like this, this is weird. Sure. You know, there wasn't really any brief besides, like, bedroom pop. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. And we didn't record anything. Then we sat there and was like, cool, I got, you know, one of my guitars and was like, all right, teach me into songs. Like, let's then do that. Yeah. You know, and we sat and yeah. wrote chords out and did that kind of stuff and then went for drinks at like five. <laughs> you know, and cool. I think that before and after session thing is so much about fostering those relationships. You know, some of the artists like um Amber, Amber Van Day, who have you know done so much on her project over the years. I mean, we've written fifty plus songs together for her project. Wow. You know, that started as stuff we would do after sessions when we would write for someone else, or you know, we would sit here and talk for an hour after a session or whatever. Mm. and so much of it is that that connection i think just that openness of like the studio is a safe space where you can say anything and therapize whatever you know if it's people that want to come in and ask industry questions or just talk about their breakup really frankly and yeah you know the paul Edwards quote was kind of like mm. you know people are so afraid of the studio because it's done in a day like no one has to hear it and does that help you kind of reconnect to the the drive and the fun of it as well because I, i'm sure sometimes there is things where the management are like this guy's coming for eight hours paul and we need the track and yeah and then other times you can pull away from it and just be like yeah maybe me and her will be the only two people that ever hear this and i can use the studio to make that and enjoy it yeah exactly with the wanted record that just came out with colors so that was me nathan from the band nathan sykes and david snedden who they, them two have written loads of songs together sure. and i've written a bunch with both of them and I've written with them together. And then that particular day, because we knew each other so well already, and we'd had all that personability and connection build up over time, over four or five sessions, you know, that day Nathan was driving down and he'd sent us a text like half an hour before and was like, oh, today I want to write a song called Colours. Right. And he got to the studio and was like, we, me and Dave were like, well, what, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I just had this idea for this song called Colours. That's it. You didn't have any more lyrical kind nope, of No, he was just concept. like, I just see that being a song. Right, brilliant. And David was really excited because I just got my Mellotron and was like, oh my God, I've never seen one of those. And he, I showed him how to twill some dials and he found the string patch and the intro of the song was there. And then mm. we just wrote the whole thing. And the, the demo is granted about, it's two keys down, but it's basically the finished record. Amazing. Mm. I mean, we, since we went on to track like live strings on it and obviously get all the five lads and stuff. So it did change, but it's, the DNA is 85% there. Nice. But that again, because we had that like personable relationship already, those days then can happen where you're just complete free flow and it's like, cool, this whole thing was done in four hours. Do you think that, because a lot of our producers, who a lot of our listeners, some are full-time producers, some are like advanced hobbyists or like semi-professional. Do you yeah. feel that you found a moment where, I think certainly for myself, when I started out doing sessions kind of three or four times a, a week and was really trying to upskill and move on, there was that pressure of like every session has to deliver yeah. something. And I knew it wouldn't be a cut, but like I have to, duh, duh, duh. And have you sort of learned through doing more and more to be like, you know what, I have the confidence to, as you say, today might not be the day that we write, you know, nine to five or Jolene or whatever it needs to be. Yeah. And as you say, and because I now know that actually the relationships might be as important as me making sure this, like the EQ on this vocal is perfect for the management to hear the demo at the end of the day. Yeah, I would say yes and no. Like there's still always a little bit of stress with it. Yeah, sure. You still yeah. always want to do the best job. You want to get records placed and stuff. Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Because I, I try and remove that pressure from it. And like I think I said right at the start, like I always try and learn something even myself. Mm. Yeah. Like I had um, a session a, a little while ago that was sort of, it was a funny one because I thought it was going really, really well. And then just like got to like half four and the artist was just like, oh yeah, I'm done. 
And then I found out later that like something had happened between the artist and the writer in the room when I had my back. Oh wow! Not, nothing like illicit, yeah, yeah, but yeah, just yeah. like they ticked each other off in some way, and she was just like, "I'm done." Okay. Right. Um, and I was just kind of like, "Oh, okay." But you know, even in that, I'm like, "Cool. Well, this song will probably not go anywhere, but you know, sod it. I'm gonna like try and make some really cool drums for this, just because I can be a bit crazy." <laughs> yeah. Other than the obvious, what do you think your kind of classic, classical trained background brings to the kind of pop music that you're working the, the on? The thing that I've found over the years is those sessions were like, I would talk about chords and be like, oh my God, this chord progression, I love this so much because it's doing this and then it goes here. Mm. And artists, and most artists and writers are either, they don't know much music theory or none at all. Sure. Mm. Just switch off when you start talking music theory. <laughs> yeah. Mm. It is the dullest thing. And I think I'm just fascinated with it because... My when I first learnt music when I was five, my piano teacher didn't let me touch a piano until I passed my grade one theory. Yeah, because the, you said the grade one theory is like the best weapon you could have started. I, yeah. I've seen you say that in an interview. Like that is your yeah, that, your ace that was in your like, hole almost from the beginning. That's always been there. And actually, like above my screen now, I finally put up. I have my grade one music theory from 1995 and my master's degree in classical composition. Amazing. <laughs> That's the one like self indulgent thing I have up in here. I like it. I Just because like I think the combination of those two is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, if I go into sessions with people that are extremely musically competent, mm. you know, well-trained and well-versed in chords, mm. those sessions, you just end up writing really overly musoed. You're trying to like, again, it's this Out each analogy. Other. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and it just gets weird. Yes. Mm. But if you go and listen to like the records that like Neo makes with, you know, grades or something, well, they are both incredibly accomplished musicians. And I, like Neo was the year above me at university and she was like, wow. one hell of a piano player and jazz singer. They are incredibly musically interesting, but it never gets in the way of the song. Yeah, mm. you know, it's four real, it's you know, weird chords, four, but just four really weird chords, mm. and they understand yeah. the balance of that. And those are where those reign supreme. Same with Bruno Mars. Yeah, you know, if you try and right. take apart the harmony on like that's what I like, it's really complex. Right, but it's really well structured, so it's just enough of the DNA. A lot of producers are seen as producers and writers because. They make beats and then someone sings on it. And obviously that is a, a form of writing. But the way you're talking about music there and, and the production and mixing work you do, do you see that kind of crossover in a more traditional way of, you know, chord sequences and sitting with an artist and actually writing a song and then bringing it into the computer rather than just like, here's a beat I made? Uh, yeah, I mean, I very rarely, like very, very rarely have something before a session. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah, for me, it starts with chords above anything. It's a lot more symbiotic for me of like you know you'll find a chord sequence that everyone likes and then you'll find a sound for it and then build from there and then it's like okay then let's figure out an interesting bass line oh it could do this okay and then the bass sound comes and you know it, then you do a bit of drum production while they're doing some lyrics and you know it kind of just bounces back in two mm. I, I had this with like amber's last single for example we reproduced that four times and it was really interesting to kind of we wrote that song on a kid's hello kitty guitar in la waiting for someone to show up amazing it was late and it was just, might not come through, but it was just literally the, like the actual guitar part that's on the record. When I went yeah. to reproduce it, it was, I took it apart and the first two versions just didn't work at all. And it took me a while to sort of figure out what the DNA of the record was. Okay. And I think that's when I'm writing, I learned so much from that experience. I mean, this was like over a couple of years ago and then we did these four versions basically and. I ended up figuring out what the DNA, it was like the guitar part, the hand claps, right, the bass part and the vocal. I was like, if those four aren't in it, this is just a different record. Okay. So then building around that, and then we ended up going, inevitably, as you do, you end up going back to the original demo, and we took <laughs> a few elements from like, I think the third production, like the last chorus drums are from that third production. Right. Yeah, so it, it is that symbiosis, but I think within that, you sort of create the DNA of the record. And it kind of gets imprinted on the thing. And as you've sort of said with that Amber Van Day thing as well, also realizing the song isn't the chords. The song is the voice and the guitar part. And that, yeah. you know, you you can add in a ninth if you want and it might work. But is it really making the song better? Or is the song's essence what the singer was saying and the, the, the nice little guitar part that got you excited on day one two years ago? Yeah, exactly. And you can throw it everywhere else and the more skills you have, you can throw as many different things as you want. But... Does that make the song better? Yeah, exactly. That I mean, I think that's the question you always have to ask when making any changes. And I've I've even gone as far 
recently I've done the bolchy thing of arguing with A&Rs. <laughs> oh, well, nice. Um, Go on. <laughs> no, but were like, you know, they were talking about cutting things down, changing bits for radio. And I would just say, is this actually making the song better or is it just making it under three minutes? It's interesting yeah. because you say that because I listened to the Wanted stuff, just like the Wanted record. And I was, it was really nice hearing an instrumental beginning to a song. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that stayed. Yeah. And I'm sure you had to have arguments about that possibly. That, you know, that, that record was a dream, but it gave me so much anxiety because the team at Ireland, like Paul Adams, who's the A&R, is incredible. Okay. He's like an old school A&R. And at one point he wrote me an email saying like, I've just listened to it. This was just before we put the real strings on it. He's like, I've listened to it like 10 times. And he's like, I could write some notes, but I'm not going to be helping. He's Amazing. like, it sounds wonderful. Amazing. Like, um, um, but it gave me anxiety because I was waiting for something to go wrong. Because mm. like we'd written this record and like it was hush hush hush. It was so secret that the band were even doing anything. Right. Mm. And then you know we pitched it in and even like I didn't even tell my management I was doing that session that day because Nathan uh. wanted it to be so secret. And then I've, I'd gone out for a drink with my manager and he was like, oh, "Don't tell anyone." But you know this writer and producer, another couple on the management, it's like. Oh, they've we pitched in a song for the wanted. The wanted are coming back, and you know the A and R said he likes it, and he's going to talk to one of the lads about getting it vocaled. And at that time, I had all five lads on my record, <laughs> <laughs> and they just approved the budget to do a twenty-four piece string section. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep this secret. Yeah, and when like, do I tell you? <laughs> every single time we said, you know, should we get back in? We changed stuff, you know, and everyone just loved it. And I was like, what's going to go wrong? And then we sent it to the mix, and you know, we got to mix two and it was like, everyone was like, yeah, great, perfect, love it. The first master came back and everyone was like, wonderful, nailed it. Do you find Sweet. that when that happens, it tends to be a song that works better or are there just sometimes songs that are great once they're finished and they just take 17 prods and six ad mixes and at the end you're like, that was worth it or were you always like, it should really fly the second or third mix and we should be good to go? Uh, I think the best ones either take like, three hours or three years okay yeah yeah Nothing yeah in the middle. yeah the ones in the middle tend to end up being like eh. yeah you know, if you get to mix five it's a bit boring yeah. right um i am a firm believer that like the dna of it should be there but yeah like if you're at mix four or mix five and you're still really fighting various bits then there's something fundamentally wrong with it yeah mm. you know mm. we i had this with with one song where we were at that stage and I, I kind of said to the artist, I was like, look, let's stop mixing it. Let's go back to the production because actually I don't think it's a mix issue. I think mm. there must be something you're hearing in the track that's not right and lo and behold, there was. The more yeah. we spoke to producers who are winning Mercuries or having top top 10 records, that that thing of actually like, if it's not working, do stop and go back to the song. Yeah. It, I think as, as I've tried to grow as a producer, I've always felt that was a bit of a cliche because I came more from bands where songs were in place and it's like, and I was like, no, it's it's on me to find a better pad sound here or a better bass part or a better drum sound or whatever. Yeah. And that will make it fly. And having spoken to these people and kind of hearing you there, it's like, no, go back to the roots of it. Go back to the DNA. Yeah. And you'll find how how actually maybe you just needed a piano and it wasn't an amazing synth sound you needed, but the chord was wrong or the pre-chorus was wrong or... Yeah. And it, it's harder to write a song, but in a way it's easier to solve it that way than 1,700 presets trying to find that one. Yeah. I mean, the, it's it's not out yet. It comes out in January, the album for Patricia. There's a big ballad on there that we wrote on Zoom. I will say we wrote, everything I wrote with her was over Zoom for this oh. album. But we wrote this ballad and I was so proud of this like piano part because it was kind of like quavers in one hand, like eighth notes and then a triplet in the other. Nice. And it was really, like, really pretty. And it sat there for a long time. And then the A&R was like, yeah, I don't like that piano part. It needs to be more Adele. It needs to be more <laughs> ding dong, ding dong. I was like, oh... You know, and it had all this Atmos stuff on it. And eventually we found, like, through a lot of trial and error, seven or eight parts later, me sending them voice notes of me on my upright at home. Right. We found the piano part. But that then led to me doing the string arrangement for the song, which is, like, one of my favorite things on the Amazing. record. And, you know, the sort of responsiveness of it, of, like, actually fixing that piano part, mm -hmm. getting away from my own ego of, like, that, but that part's so clever and cool. <laughs> There's nothing else like that. Yeah. You know, for her, like we are writing a straight-up pop record that is Adele, that is Florence. Yes. It's like, you know, we're not trying to make something that's like Sophie and the Giants or something like that. Sure. And it led to this, you know, string this string arrangement that I managed to write that kind of just turned the whole thing into this real centerpiece. And otherwise, probably Adele would have done this really overcomplicated string arrangement that played off this piano part and stuff. So yeah. 
this exactly what you're saying going back and looking at the song and the dna of it and fixing that and in the process changing a couple of chords actually brought it all together I was going to say we should talk about Taryard and because it's fairly unique as is a creative hub for music. You've been there a long time, right? And we just, you know, both of us have visited for various sessions and, and meetings and whatnot. But love to hear what it's been like working there for for so long and being at the center of it. It's been really interesting as like a career growth kind of thing because even when I first moved in, you know, those people that I made as friends who would work with X artists and Y artists, and then you know, a year or two later, get myself to the point where I was working with those artists felt mm. really good. Mm. and obviously you do you see a lot of people around more than, i've always found it more than like a networking thing i've tried to stay like have a relationship with like the cafe and the networking side where it's like i'm present but i'm not like too in it because yeah. you know they used to have the networking nights up here and you do see the same faces coming through those and not getting anywhere um right. so i i had a sort of maybe it's my own hang up where i was just like i want to just be a bit step removed but still in it yeah um but just treating it as like a huge motivator of seeing yeah. people working, particularly at the start of it, seeing people working those hours, seeing the people that come in and out and stuff like that to be like, cool, I can get there. I know these people. But then also, as it's almost like, I think of it probably a bit like university, you know, where it's like everyone goes to uni and there's this amazing library that you can go and like pull everything from and it's up to you to find stuff out. Mm. You know, when I like had to fix something on on the Patricia album, funny enough, I got sent some vocals that she'd done at home with her son last minute, and it was a mess of noisy stuff. Like the vocal, the tape was good, but like badly recorded. Mm. Um, and I had to fix some stuff, so I rang up the guy who does audio books, who's like an RX wizard, and was like, "Can you come down and show me how to fix this?" Oh, so no. it was like having the library of professionals to be like, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, even just as going back to the inspiration thing, like seeing a company like Spitfire that was like three studios when i moved in here wow. now they've got a whole building yeah. now. like seeing the scale of that is just madly inspirational as well the music yeah. industry got so fractured didn't it for kind of 10 or 15 years as the old world ended and the new world begun and it's been amazing to see a new whether it was you know tim pan alley or you know in the 70s like chiswick you had four of the main studios around chiswick green and then shoreditch to an extent but now there's this kind of new tim pan alley and it's it's kind of reassuring for the music industry that this can just continue to happen. Yeah, I mean, even the fact that the owner, Paul Paul Kemp, who is just the most lovely, good person, um, you know, he will stick his head in, you know, just knock on doors and just say hi. And he's just, you know, he does it because he loves music. And I think that sort of bleeds through into what everyone does. I came here on a punt. I yeah. was very, very lucky I knew someone that worked here. I had a bit of a connection. I'd done a couple of writing sessions in the writing rooms. I mean, I'm still in the same room that we would have worked together in Lawrence. Really? No way. The same, same little room. I have no intention of moving. Like, there's a studio that I want, and I'm not moving until I get that one. <laughs> I've seen people come and go who've tried to do what I do. I did. Like, I was very lucky. I got a sink. I made some money. Had enough, kind of, to pay a year's rent. And just, yeah. like, off. I'm taking a punt. Yeah. Because there is a pressure going... to that, isn't there? That, that yeah, can I had be nothing tough. going on. I had yeah. no connections. I'd made instrumentals at home. I'd barely been in a songwriting session. Right. Apart from as an engineer or an assistant or kind of my previous life as an arranger, like flirting with that stuff. And just figured it out. And then luckily carved out a bit of a niche because it turned out there wasn't really a session musician on site. So, you know, yeah. over the first three months, managed to earn enough money from playing guitar and other people's records to pay one more month's rent. I just kind of kept banking it and then, you know, started to get little bits and managed to get on my first writing camp you know thanks to jason sharp here but you know he was the first person to kind of pay any attention to me and actually put me on a writing camp it's refreshing to hear and i'm sure it is for our listeners as well that like getting to tile yard or, or having a studio space there doesn't mean you're like great i've made it and now all the sessions will come in and i'm a guy and i make records and i'm at tile yard like yeah you had that struggle you like there's a time limit and i wasn't sure it was going to go and i just had oh, to yeah, take it, a punt on it and and it was Two and two and a bit years. Two and a bit years I signed my publishing deal. Wow. So two and a half uh, years of really grinding for it. Yeah. I was working as a t I was doing music teaching as well, like Mondays and Thursdays. To join it all up. 
Yeah, and then I was here the other five days of the week. Because I think that's one thing we like to kind of touch on is an end product always sounds good, but like how you get there, not just from beginning of writing a song to producing it, but like as a producer to, to get to the point where you're making that great sounding record. I always think in a film, I've said this in another interview, the most important part of a film of a hero's journey is the montage. And that's the bit that only asks 20 seconds. That's where everything happens. Those 20 seconds are the film, but it's boring. Paul, there's one question I did want to ask. You sort of alluded to it earlier. Yes. Obviously, you've got this amazing CV and kind of, as you said, oh, each you. year the cuts get bigger and the last thing that kind of came out is the wanted and that's like a new pinnacle. But you sort of talking earlier about the kind of records you want to make maybe in the future. And I was noticing with some of the stuff that you share on Instagram, stuff like with the Hara or with Josie, it's quite an involved process. It's not very in the box. You can tell that you're kind of going deep into the production and really building a sonic world that's maybe not just... yeah on a computer screen with an artist in a room for, for a day. It's a, a much more involved process. Is that the kind of thing you more want to move towards, yeah. these kind of more involved productions, these more sonically expansive productions? Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah. Like, the stu- I know the stuff that excites me. You know, I went to see Jack Garrett play last night, and, like, yeah. you know, he's spending a year, two years by himself making mm-hmm. these records. Yeah. And that's it's just the stuff that excites me like that. Yeah, I listened to... There's an... Uh, Shout out to another podcast that I listen to, which is called Tape Notes. Um, I listened uh, like a few days ago to the one with Jungle, and it kind of blew my mind that they write a lot of their songs by going into like a studio and jamming for three hours and then going and chopping it up. Definitely the kind of records I want to make. I want to have like, I can't really describe it any other way of like, I want you to feel the air moving. Like, I want it to feel like it's been in a space that, you know, things have space to them. Think, you know, you can hear a guitar from across the room. Like, it's not this, like, I'm not as interested in, like, the hard program trap beats. And I, I can make that stuff. I'm very happy making it. Yeah. But as a career goal, like, I'd be way more interested in working with a Florence and something like that. Sure. And spending the time kind of crafting those things out and trying to make something that's a bit odd. Or I will caveat all this with, like, there is definitely a symbiosis with, like, I mean, I've tried recently. I did some stuff on tape and it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> I have no interest in buying a desk and a tape machine after that. Um don't do that. Maybe like one day way down the line is like a beautiful rig to work through. But um, there is a symbiosis between the computer and, and the instrument. But there is a way of making records where I think it's what I want to get to and trying to work out is, yeah, it just feels like you're sat in the middle of it. Like you mm. were there when it was written. Like you can feel the DNA of it. Even like I listened to the new Foles record the other day. Yeah, lovely stuff. And just like you do, you feel it. Everything's just a little bit crunched. The drums and the bass. And it almost feels like you're stood at the front of a venue, and you're mm. kind of getting the thump in your chest from that. Yeah, it's that. It's hard to sort of say what what it is tangibly. You know, I was watching Jack Garrett was playing with a band last night, and watching his drummer. Like, you know, and it, the live mix was phenomenal. And every time you saw his foot move, you felt your chest stood. Yeah, yeah. And yet that somehow translates on the full record. That's cool. And that's what I want to get to. There's, uh, it's very, like I said, it's very hard to describe tangibly what that is. Yeah. There is just a feeling to it of authenticity. And part of that is building that artist relationship, isn't it? You know, building that connectivity. Is, is that where you see it going from here? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved artist development. Yeah. Like taking something, like the horror was something where they'd done this stuff and I understood the trajectory and over the two EPs that I did with them, built it and built it to this more polished thing. With Josie, even when we constructed all that, it went. It was a very conscious move that that first EP had to sound very rough and ready. And there were very deliberate things done, like on one of the songs, is it Slice Bread? Yeah, Slice Bread, which was one of our first like songs to get like a million streams. Rather than like tracking the LP one by auxing it in and making it really clear, I just held the, you know, the little speaker up to the mic. Mm. Nice. Because I kind of wanted it to feel like someone who didn't know what they were doing, you know, yeah. and yeah. deliberately miking things a bit wrong. There's a, a really there's one thing, and I, uh, <clears throat> I don't often blow my own trumpet, but there's one thing on one of her records, Champagne Fizzles, that I'm so proud of. And it's the most subtle production thing that no one will notice. <laughs> the, the, this Until is now. what we're here for. We're here yeah. to give producers their, this moment. They need yeah. it. Which is, yeah, on Champagne Fizzles, it, we recorded it. And it's one take. It's me, me playing guitar and her singing and recorded it with three mics. So it's just her singing, two mics on the guitar, and then my phone. No, it wasn't my fault. It was voice notes on my laptop. Tell a lie. Right. And then also trapped the mics. 
and then the whole thing it starts with the voice note recording ah uh, nice and then slowly over the three and a half minutes it's only when you get to the last chorus is it the actual microphone and it happens so slowly wow you don't notice and it just gives it a very sense of space and things changing and becoming more hi-fi mm. and it wasn't the like i wanted to put like rc20 and have a wobble on it or whatever it's yeah. just like it just needs to feel small and mono like a little beatles record at the stars coming off a tiny little acetate and then just grow into a stereo thing where everything and even the way like the guitar mics are they very slowly pan as it comes in like Ooh. they kind of get wider so the sound of the guitar gets bigger or whatever and it kind of her vocal pans slightly across and there was one room mic as well Nice. That's lovely stuff. Yeah, and as you say, you can do you could do something like that with an RC20 or a vinyl plug-in. Yeah. But what a beautiful thing to... Just something fun to do as well. Like, as you say, it's a sandpit. Like, enjoy it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, with with her as well, like I said earlier, like, she was a busker. You know, she played in pubs. The whole EP was called, I think, Pub Songs Volume 1. And I was like, there's no reason for us to multi-track this. Like, we can just mm. play it three or four times and get a really good take. Do you find yourself sitting with artists, encouraging them to lean into that? We were we were saying, oh, that massively. Some, sometimes artists can feel that they've got signed or got some interest for being X, Y, and they're like, "Great, now I'm in a studio. Can you make me sound like this person who I hear on the radio?" And you have to be like, "No, there's something that's so special about you, whether it's you're a busker or yeah." It is one of the biggest debates that I have, and more often it's not with the artists. More often it's with the teams. Yeah. Mm. You know, they want. You know, and it will always change. And there's a record that I've got at the minute that I, I won't name for who and what it's involved with. And it's a beautiful ballad with a little string quartet on it. And I'm just waiting for the point. I know the label are going to pick it up at some point. It's been talked about a lot. And I'm just waiting for the point where the A&R turns around and says, can we just make it sound like driver's license? I'm just like, I know that conversation's coming. But exactly what you said, I'm like, no, this record is great because it's unique like that. Mm. Artists have USPs, and to try and dilute that is so so upsetting to me. Of like these artists that all succeed, you know the the big thing. And I'm sure you came across this both of you as like in writing a production when Billie Eilish blew up. Everyone yeah. was looking for the British Billie Eilish. Yeah, everyone yes. wanted to cite Billie Eilish. And it, you know, if you'd have walked into an any A and R's office when she was 14 and said, hey, here's this song, Bad Guy. By the way, we're going to win 11 Grammys for this in a few years. Mm. They would have laughed at you and kicked you out and wouldn't have even listened to the record. Yeah. Yeah. Yet then, because it's a hit, everyone wants it to sound like it. That's mm. very true. Shakespeare once said that music is the food of love. But what is the food of music? As much as the right microphone or guitar amp, what we eat or drink can be such a crucial part of a recording session. So each week we like to ask our guests, what do they cook or order to get the mood right in the studio? I mean... Incidentally, I was always terrible at eating. I was actually the guy that like people were like, you never eat lunch. So I'd just work through. Um, coming full circle. Um, granted, I was always spoiled here at Talyard because the calf has always been really great for food. Yeah. Um, it's good that food. being said, there is the one takeout round here that is amazing, Bombay burrito. That is literally, it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's literally just an Indian burrito. Granted, if I was going to take an, like, an artist out for dinner after a session. Yeah. There is either the Lord Stanley pub right near Tar Yard, which is just an old man's pub that just does the most amazing grub, or Dishoom. Dishoom at King's Cross. Is Mate, Dishoom at, the King's Cross one is Dishoom a Breakfast as well. Dishoom Breakfast is the one. What's your favourite studio space that you've ever worked in? Probably the church, Paul Letwood's place in Crouch End. Yeah. What work did you do there, Paul? Uh, I did some string stuff years ago. did some string arranging cool. for someone there and got to work in there for a few days. It's just the most beautiful space. Whenever I get to a chance to like hang out in there with a friend's work in there, it's just fantastic. Just the vibe. Uh, on a slightly smaller level, what's your favorite plugin? At the minute, probably the stuff by... It's Aberrant DSP. They do a thing called Sketch Cassette. Okay. That's like this weird, warbly thing. That or a other go-to like that has just been in my toolbox for years is the Vultpec compressor, Vult compressor. Oh, uh, nice. A couple of people have mentioned that, that one. It's just stunning. What's your favourite synth? Uh, favourite synth is... Uh, does it count as a synth? My Mellotron. Yeah, we'll have yeah, that. Yeah, it counts as my a synth. My Mellotron. Yeah. I've wanted one of those for as long as I've been in studios. And then when I signed my new publishing deal, that was the first thing I bought. And then it got stuck in Brexit drama because I bought it in December and it shipped in January. Oh, and what? it showed up four months later. <laughs> but it is just the most glorious sounding, lovely thing. And anything you play on that, just 
either feels vintage or it just fills a space that just nothing else can do. Amazing. Is is it just? I mean, I, I say just. Is it? Is it? Is it all strings? No, no. It's got the full. It's yeah. got the full library of like. Uh, Mellotron Chamberlain yeah. M400 sounds, yeah. You can you so it's the, does that involve changing a tape? No, it's not. It's not an original one. It's one of the new ones where it's like tube. Oh right, and wow. going in tube tube output stuff going like digital samples going into that that have been like ridiculously sampled. Oh wow, okay. it's like what is it? It's like the M400D. It's like they do a mini one, they do one that's a rack unit, they do a big one that's got like weighted keys, and then this is the one in between. We're getting some great answers here. So, Paul, your favorite piece of hardware? Uh favorite piece of hardware yeah it's it's got to go shout out to my my ua sound cards the x6 is a, just an absolute tank that has never let me down works perfectly is built on like i've since got more pre's like the 4710 and stuff like that that have expanded onto it and it just works nice. you know whatever i've had i've ported it up chucked it in the back of cars taking it to writing camps and it just works even like i've still got the apollo twin that i've had for 10 years now that has been literally around the world with me in a backpack and still works the last of the Fast Five is what's your favourite microphone? Can I can I pick up myself for my old Rode NT1A that I modified? Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, Tell us about that. So, I, yeah, I get this question a lot of like, because I've done a lot of vocal production stuff. Yeah. I get this question a lot of like, oh, my God, what microphone do you use? Mm. It is, I think it's like a 90s NT1A. It's not like the ones you buy now in the bundles where it's got a metal body. It's got a plastic body. Mm. Okay. You used to be able to pick them up on eBay for about 40 quid. They're a bit more now. Um, I've had two because I blew the first one up trying to modify it. Amazing. And there is like a series of mods you can do where you change a couple of capacitors and take, basically there's a big wadge of foam in front of the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing to do is take it apart because it's all glued together. Yeah. Kind of like an iPhone where like the battery's glued in, you've got to really surgically remove it and not blow it up. Yeah, and I modded it years ago and it was just uh, the first mic I had a friend had recommended and then I found out about this mod and I've just used that ever since. Sweet. Every single vocal has been recorded on that. Wow. Um, even, and I will say, even with Amber's first single, Kids in the Corner, she was really fussy about wanting to revocal it. Uh-huh. And I borrow, borrowed off John Kelly here. I borrowed like his, he's got a Wagner. It's like a U87 clone. Yeah. He's got an original U47. Wow. And he's got the Telefunken 251 that is the actual Mikey recorded Kate Bush on. Oh, Whoa. And we, did, we tried all four and I gave her a blind test and she was like, I pick number three. And that was my microphone. What is the favorite production, your favorite production, either that you've worked on or a piece of a production that you think of when you think of like, that's that's how it should be? Ooh. You know, it changes from time to time. There's a few that's like, that's what I like, the Bruno Miles record. I think it's just one of the best constructed pop records yeah. ever. Um, one I've been obsessed with recently is the Nothing But Thieves song. Um there's two songs off their record. There's Impossible and Everybody Going Crazy that are just stunning, like, big room records. Cool. But also just the most cool, like, glam rock sounding guitars. And just the way that, like, I saw an interview with the producer of that who, like, talked about the way they got some of the guitar sounds and Everybody Going Crazy and it's just a guitar DI'd into a, like, a Bay Neve just turned all the way up. Yeah. Nice. Literally just, like, absolutely cranked and it's just preamp for us. Nice. And one of yours? Um, it's like picking between your favorite kids. Sure. Um, I mean, the Wanted record, I'm super proud of. Super, super proud of. Like getting to go back to my roots and do like a 24 piece string section with it. Mm. And like just the challenge of making such a large, because it's a big sounding record. Yeah. Like, there's huge drums. There's three or four guitars buried in there. You know, there's a 24 piece string section. There's synths and mellotrons and and then five lads singing vocals yeah and then yeah exactly yeah um i mean that that song alone has four separate pro tool sessions whoa so jesus um, wow. which is not how i really work but yeah i'm proud of the sort of accomplishment of getting that together our, our last question that we ask everyone is uh what is the most important tool at your disposal as a producer uh for me my guitars <laughs> cool that's a new um, answer. I I am still I'm still the 14 year old kid that bought myself, you know, got a Sunday job and bought myself a guitar, and I am happiest with a guitar in my hand. I mean, we knew before the interview that Paul was a really hard worker just because of the volume of cuts he's got, but. You know, talking to him, you can you can see it's a it's a really big part of how he how he goes about his business. 
Yeah, he thrives off it, doesn't yeah. he? Like, I think what was really interesting, some people always, you know, we, we can live in a world where people kind of talk about how much they work and it can almost be a weaponized yeah. thing. But but for Paul, you could tell it's just, he loves it. He loves music. He's worked so hard to get to this position and he he's just really zen about it. And, and his approach to music, as he said, from like starting out as a classically trained musician is that's, that's what you do with music. Yeah. It, the, the results are there to see. I mean, I was working through his playlists of songs and I'd sort of follow up on some artists or blah, blah, blah. And, I'd, and then I'd go to the artist page and realized he was also involved in like eight other songs on that yeah. page. And, and the playlist itself is long enough. And you're like, yeah, that's, um, that's a work ethic. It's also a skill. You can work that hard. And if you're bobbins... It's not like, going to happen. Yeah, you it's need to It's not going to happen. Yeah. And me and you have talked about this work ethic thing mm. and work-life balance a lot and, and a lot of the other producers we've talked to have have talked about it as well what, what's your feeling well i think i think it, it, it it's a reflection of what we were talking about in the intro about tar yard and that that instinct that we get going there of like serious work being done and mm. it's it's a certain branch of the music industry um kind of more in the pop world where this is just kind of the expectation that that people will work around the clock uh, where where it's required and and when we spoke to Sam, he was saying like they had the situation like when they're working with Korea where they'd like go to bed yeah. and by the time they woke up having just sent stems, yeah, well, they would have revisions. I've seen that now more recently because I've been helping out Sam like just just assisting him and doing stems and stuff and and they, they request stuff. Um, the expectation is you're just sat at your desk ready to do it. They're like, oh, you, we need this by tomorrow. And it's already like, you know, midnight in Korea and you've got eight hours. And yeah, I, I and like, I think talking to Paul and, and, and seeing the, the way that certain other producers work, I, I think I realized that maybe it, it just wouldn't work for me. I've, I've gotten very used to being able to have my downtime and I've realized how important it is for my mental health. And I just, don't think I'd ever want to work like that. And I find it really impressive that people people are capable of doing it. I think within myself, honestly, I would have loved that for a period of my life. Yeah. And, and and I was lucky enough that when I was in bands and touring, it, it sometimes would be it, but mm. in a different way. Yeah. And, and I loved it and I thrived off it. And and that's what you really get from Paul is it, it you know, he's had this period of ill health, but um, he seems to he seems to just love being there and and for so long I would have loved that too mm. and and I think it's cause and effect isn't it once you get into that you some you it's too much yeah. and you want to come out of it and it, and it it come becomes a push and pull and everyone just keeps fighting for that balance yeah. whatever industry they're in for me now I just know that with a family it it's not a possible it's thing tough yeah um but also the other thing I started to realize is it is about what you're making um mm. and and if you're making something that's maybe slightly more personal or, or um, a bit more alternative, it can be a bit more about inspiration and maybe doing, you know, not sleeping for three days and then not doing anything for two weeks or, or you yeah. know, th there's so many ways to skin that cat. Yeah, um, I, I think there's something to be said for not letting that kind of attitude to the work reflect the, mm -hmm. the music that comes out the, at the end, right? And and I think, yeah. I think Paul's really good for that because he clearly however hard he works he gives time for the for the work to breathe for the song to breathe mm, for, to let yes. the process happen and that's something that really came through and i think that's something that you have to guard against when you're working in in the in the pop music industry at a high level and you know things are kind of getting churned out on a conveyor belt is not to let the music get turned into processed cheese mm, yes and, and and at all levels i mean even I've been in situations where there was an expectation to write a certain amount of songs. And then you're like, well, I thought it was fascinating what Liam said in one of our yeah. interviews. He's like, you only have so many songs in you a year if you're an artist and, and, and kind of squeezing that lemon too much. It doesn't work. And producers have a different role to artists, but I do think there is an, an element of that. Yeah. I think I found it very interesting that I talking to Paul, he really seems to have found a healthy balance, even if his healthy balance is, quite full on yeah i think wherever you are in your career it's something that's worth keeping an eye on and just looking after yourself because yeah there's there's that temptation to beat yourself into the ground and that's never mm. advisable um talking about like where you are in your mm. career i thought it was also a really interesting interview with paul um 
and, and, and how he approaches everything. He's got this very focused mindset. But I think we interviewed him at a point where his career is evolving yeah. and developing. You know, he's achieved this amazing success of being an established producer and writer at Tile Yard, one of the kind of hubs of music production in the world. I don't think that's too big no. a statement. Um, but he's now sort of transitioning into this maybe more album-based or more um, alternative-based or more kind of... I don't know the exact word to describe it, but like a slightly broader palleted idea of production. And I think that's something we're going to see him move into in the next couple of years. And it was interesting to talk to him about how he's feeling that out. Yeah, I guess while you're fighting to make your name, it's difficult to also kind of curate your output in in any meaningful Mm. way. Whereas now he might be getting to the point where he can pick pick and choose his jobs a bit more and also figure out the kind of producer that that he really wants to be, that he is, the music mm. that suits him. The interview was really inspiring for me on on a few fronts in that regard. Like there, there are times in his career where he's taken a punt. Like uh, like, yes. like the first year he got the studio at Tarryard, he put down the deposit. He didn't necessarily know that he was going to be able to earn that money back, but did it and you know got got stuck in, got his hands dirty and made something of it. And that, that's inspiring. Mm. It's really inspiring. And, and I also found it inspiring the, the way he talked about how like, even that then was a process mm. of, you know, doing session work, doing arranging work. And in his head, he's like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a producer, but I've just got to keep, you know, doing two days a week, yeah. teaching music and stuff. And uh, we got that as well when we interviewed Sam Interface. And he talked about like when he had that balance of he was still working in a bar, but making tunes that Andy C was playing. Yeah. And actually, in a way, that was his happiest time. Yeah. And thought he packed in the day job too quickly. That, yeah, that, yeah, there's so many different ways to, to get there and, and hear that people who are really succeeding um, in an industry are going through those processes because I think we only see the success. We only see that on Instagram and, or social media or when we meet people. And, and, and actually, there's so much time in between. There's bills to be paid. There's life to be lived. And, and, and music ain't always going to, mm. you know, as my friend used to say, butter your potatoes. And, and it's really nice to see that yeah. um, someone like Paul is it, taken a long time to get to this point where I wouldn't even say he's stable. No one ever feels mm. stable in the music industry. Mm. But yeah, I found that inspiring. Mm. I, I did. And I found that inspiring across everyone we've interviewed because everyone we've interviewed's work I respect. Yeah. And, and you realize that everyone's had a struggle to kind of find a way to exist in the music industry. And, and if you're going through that struggle, yeah. you're not unusual you're completely normal. No, that, that was reassuring. Something that kind of um, brought up my insecurities was talking about the musical theory side of things. And I, yeah, that's interesting. And I think we've both, we've both struggled with it. We're both pretty decent at musical theory, you know, compared to... The, 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 yes, we're the fine. Layman. We're definitely no, we're not nowhere, but, yes. But also, like, we can't... Like, I, I know this is something you do. You sit down and work out songs when you really like them and, and, and you know, just that's a great way to learn about songs. But... I don't. I don't really have the ear for that, and and I imagine like it takes you about eighteen times longer than it than it would Paul yes. can just sit down yes. and strum it out on the guitar in two seconds. Um, I'd love to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, I would love to be able to yeah. do that. And and I, it's one of those skills that I've really tried to improve, mm. and and just realize that you every day is a learning day. Yeah. Um, but yes, Paul, and then my my friend Adam, who I me and you have worked with. Yeah. Um, he he has, I think, essentially the same. Uh, master's degree yes. from Guildhall as Paul has yeah. and it, it is a language yeah. it's it, it for them it look it's like looking at a word and finding out what letters are yeah. in it, the idea that you wouldn't be able to just do yeah. that is mind-blowing it, it, it's so impressive and it really is a useful skill for what we do but I think it's important to note that it's only part of the package yes and it's okay you know it's it's okay for for, for us um, mere mortals who you know can't hear two two bars of a song and tell you exactly what key it's in. Uh, and I've worked with world class producers who know nothing yeah. about music theory in terms of that music theory, but they know everything else about producing a, a bang. Exactly, record. that's something I wanted to talk to to Paul about. Actually, we didn't get a chance. Just like what? How does he see producers who have zero music theory knowledge? Because there's mm. there's plenty of them mm. about, and there's plenty of great ones yes. and plenty of successful ones. So. I don't. I'm not too disheartened by the fact that I'm not this gifted, pitch perfect uh, person, uh, and I don't think anyone should be. The lesson I've learned is to not let what you do and don't know get in the way of of doing it. Yeah. Um, not be scared and just dive in. And and I, you know, the session I did with Paul, the other gentleman, a guy called Nick Bradley, another great writer who was on it, 
is I, I think he's like grade eight piano and, and yeah. trained quite seriously and maybe if I'd have done that session earlier in my life I'd have been like don't suggest things because these guys know x y mm -hmm. and z stick to what you mm -hmm. know and they're you know most people who write music and make music they want to have that conversation and sometimes the way you approach things is different and and that's going to be unique so just dive yeah. in and um yeah as i say i want to keep learning but i've tried to lose my hang-ups that said if i got in a room with like if i was invited to work on the anderson pack bruno mars record <laughs> and they were like do you want to play guitar on this i'd probably say i'm not the guy <laughs> to play guitar on this for you and i'd call paul up and see if he was yeah. free to come yeah, in yeah yeah, yeah. Another little footnote. This is the last time we're going to yeah. mention Black Friday, but the 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 plugins that um, Paul picked. Um, he mentioned Sketch Cassette, which is Aberrant DSP. Yes, um, They're on sale at the moment. They, they only do two plugins: Aberrant, the Sketch Cassette, and the it's called the Tone Shaper or something like that, which is kind of a Wolf compressor style, like really characterful compressor. I decided to pick them up on Paul's recommendation. I've been using them in sessions the last few days, and they're really, really, really cool. So, and Sketch Cassettes about. 14 pounds at the moment yeah and you can get the two of them for like 25 pounds so wow amazing they do a little bundle deal so just go and grab those i think i think they were a really good pick from paul lovely great well what a lovely note to end it on we'll be back in a fortnight for what will be our last episode before christmas yep. and we send you lots of love wherever you are see you next time guys bye bye thank you for listening to the process of production this week if you enjoyed it, please give us a follow and maybe even a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. It really helps. And please get in touch if you have any thoughts on the show, questions you'd like answered, or producers you'd like to see featured. We'd love to hear from you. Our Instagram is at processofproduction and our email is processofproductionpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>